Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast. And this is going to be on what I would call Hot Topics in CT 2011. And this is some stuff that I've noticed or read or reviewed in this uh, last few months since January uh, 2011. And in fact, some of the stuff I'm going to put in here I actually read just yesterday, and it's actually in the May 2011 radiology, so I'm actually lying. So let me pick on a couple of topics that I think were of interest and focus on some questions and some of the things that's being written. So the first thing I'm going to address is what's the most current issues surrounding radiation and CT scanning? This is something we always, of course, uh, are aware of. All of us are changing protocols, and in fact, CTSS will have our new set of protocols for our flash scanner up within the next two weeks. But there's a good article by Dower talking about communicating with patients, which is something we all do. And he made the point, the confluence of concepts has triggered a classic media-driven social amplification of the perceived seriousness of an accident or normal clinical practice. This can result in the stigmatization of radiation medicine, which may result in a loss of public confidence and reluctance of patients to undergo necessary examinations or treatments. And this indeed is everybody's biggest fear, that things always get blown out of proportion. The USA Today type news report, uh, is always the issue. The confluence of these concepts has triggered a classic media-driven social amplification. And that is such a very nice way of putting it, is that things are blown out of proportion. But it's said a whole lot better than the way I just said it. I think, again, we need to balance reality and fact, and I think particularly when talking to patients. Um, same comment from the article. Media reports often transform scientific concerns into facts, and the sensationalized reporting of a few radiation overdoses catalyzed public unease, regulatory scrutiny, and legislative interest. And again, this is the classic thing. We see it not just with radiation, but everything in the newspapers these days. All of a, some, all of a sudden, something becomes the focus of everybody's attention, whether it's Lindsay Lohan stealing a necklace or something in Afghanistan that someone took a couple pictures or things like that. So again, we need to keep things, uh, we need to put science first and again, as it says here, scientific concerns are all sudden transformed into facts that are not exactly true. Now, some things to look at that are positive. This article by Amos talking about the American College of Radiology. The ACR, an advocate for radiation safety for over 80 years, convened the Blue Ribbon Panel in 2006 and had 37 recommendations. In this report, they looked at the status of the recommendations and looked at them. For example, in 2009 paper, Fazl showed that myocardial perfusion imaging alone contributed to 22% of the total effective dose for medical imaging studies, while CT of the abdomen, chest, and pelvis was 38%. So those were two areas, particularly CT, we needed to focus on. And so 37 recommendations came about, of, and of which 30 progress has been made, either completing it or in progress. ACR recommendations address all parties, from the referring physician to the technologist to the radiologist to physicists, vendors, and regulatory agencies. Everybody is part of the problem. So for physicians, educate them about radiation exposure. For the radiologists, increase resident training in regards to dose. Develop radiation modules as part of uh, uh, retraining. Make CT protocols more available. Encourage individual institutions to develop safety teams. For techs, increase in-service training. Have at least one tech with advanced registry in CT. Work with patient advocacy groups. 
more training of non-radiologists who use radiation and of retraining radiologists. Vendors working with NEMA to ensure Alara is followed to make certain that our machines are as safe as possible and work closely with the FDA and the NRC to combine efforts, encourage correct regulations, and really do everything as a group. Again, if you look at this, there's seven different groups of people listed. The key is to make sure that we address all of these parties and that everyone has a say, but that everyone is on the same paper. We need to make certain that we're really uh, working very, very closely. Good article by Hetty Resack, who is the past president of the RSNA, talking about uh, a multifaceted challenge. This special report aims to inform the medical community about the many challenges involved in managing radiation in a way that maximizes the benefit-risk ratio. The report discusses state of the current knowledge and key questions in regard to sources of medical radiation exposure, radiation risk estimation, dose reduction strategies, and regulatory options. Again, it is a multifaceted challenge. Article by Coakley, what can you do right now in your practice? Again, what is it that you can do? Well, potential measures include provision of patient information material, make sure your CT protocols are up to date, promotion of alternative studies, decision support software, automatic tube current modulation, business shields, improved image reconstruction uh, algorithms, empowerment of technologists to adjust protocols, and calculation of dose for possible reporting. So there are many things we can do now and many things that are being developed to help us do even better in the coming years. Article by Balter, selecting the optimal procedure for an individual patient requires consideration of many factors of benefit and risk. Too much attention to radiogenic risk may distract attention from other risk and potential benefits, which may not be in the patient's best interest. And it's very important, this article by Balter, again, CT, for example, is an incredible study. If you look at the risk-reward, it's so much in favor in most cases of doing the study. Radiogenic cancers are a late statistical risk because of the latent period of years to decades between a radiation and clinical cancer. There is no radiogenic risk if the patient does not survive long enough to manifest the cancer. You gotta do the right study, and when it's necessary, you do it, and you do it correctly. Balter, very, very important point, and this is again one of the talking points when you're dealing with referring physicians or you're dealing with patients. And again, goes back to the concept by Dower about this whole idea of this media frenzy and this misunderstanding. We need to be careful that we don't get caught up in this massive confusion. We need to, again, as I said, focus on the science, focus on doing what's right, and focus on the facts, and not let the media control things, and not let these unusual events that tend to be sensationalized be what is considered standards. Now, sometimes people do ask a question, and this is a good article in AJR this past month, how do you communicate uh, what it really means if you're getting a study? And here was a comparison of, of chest radiographs versus CT of the abdomen, for example, uh, comparing it to how many chest x-rays or background equivalent radiation in the U.S. or in Colorado. Um, that may be helpful for some patients. They also talked about maybe making things a little bit simpler, talking about things as a major, minor, minimal, or negligible, looking at some of the risk modification, the percentages. Some people like percentages. What's the chance of getting a, 
a, a cancer from a scan. The probability of no cancer is 99.95%. So again, you want to look at some of those numbers. A good article by Cynthia McCullough also trying to stick with the science. We talk about volume CTDI, which is displayed on the scanner, as a way of thinking about dose to the patient. But really, it is not the dose to that particular patient. And this article makes the point that CT dose index and patient dose are not the same thing. The CTDI values are included in either a screen capture report or patient dose report, uh, which and this tends to reinforce the incorrect belief that the CTI is a measure of patient dose. It's not. What the CTDI is, is a standardized measure of the radiation output of a CT system measured in a phantom that enables users to gauge the amount of emitted radiation and compare the radiation output between different scan protocols or scanners. So it can be very useful because you can compare protocols and see what the dose from the protocol is. But in saying that, complex calculations are required to map scanner output to patient dose, take into account patient size, irradiated organs, body composition, and scan range. So using CTDI, you cannot judge the risk to that patient. Cynthia goes on to say, estimates of individual patient risk and epidemiologic studies assessing potential late effects must use patient size-specific dose estimates. They cannot use only scanner output, whether it's CTDI or DLP. Rather, use of the known exponential relationship between patient size and absorbed, absorbed dose will allow patient size-specific dose estimates to be made from scanner output values. So it's very, very important to realize that CTDI is useful to compare doses delivered by various scan protocols or to achieve a specific level of image quality for a specific size patient, but that's what it does and how you can use it very nicely in your practice but not to confuse it with estimating effective dose to patients or potential risk for any individual patient. And again, these are the typical things that tend to be confused and very, very important. Remember that CTDI is a number you get before you even scan the patient. You should be looking at it to make sure it's not too high, but it's not dose. Very, very important. Okay, what else? There were some articles also published over the last couple of months that were very focused on specific applications. Here was one this past month talking about uh, chest CT and using 40MAS with ACER, which is this iterative reconstruction, that they found that it had acceptable image quality. CT radiation dose reduction to 3.5 milligray is achievable with ACER-enabled chest CT while maintaining acceptable image noise and diagnostic confidence. So again, it's something we are seeing. Iterative reconstruction is going to be a major part of what we do. Vendors, particularly Siemens and G, are really on top of it. Another article uh, talking about cumulative uh, dose and risk factors. Cumulative CT radiation exposure added incrementally to baseline cancer risk in the cohort. While most patients accrue low radiation-induced cancer risk, a subgroup is potentially at higher risk due to recurrent imaging. So I think this article focused on sometimes some patients with chronic diseases will get lots of different imaging procedures, and that can be a significant issue. It's a small percent of patients 
Incremental risk are estimated to exceed 1% above baseline in 7%, but it's still not an insignificant number. There's an article I found from a couple years ago, and in this article, 33% of patients underwent five or more lifetime CTs, 5% underwent between 22 and 132 CT exams, 15% received estimated cumulative dose of more than 100 millisieverts, and 4% between 250 and 1375. So again, patients who have processes like repeated episodes of pancreatitis, patients who have chronic debilitating disease, not cancer patients typically, but non-cancer patients, need to be very careful that the, a single exam is not an issue, but it's the cumulative risk. And it may not only be in your hospital, they may have had studies at 10 other places. So very important to be aware of that. So radiation, key focus, something we're looking at constantly. CTSS is really focused on that. As I said, we're putting new protocols up, but we're going to continue to provide you with the latest information. And you can see more of these uh, quotes and more information if you look in the Pearl section under radiation dose. Okay, topic two, what's new in cardiac CT? A number of different articles, and here was a very good article looking at uh, cardiac and pericardiac masses, talking about CT as a useful alternative to MRI. CT has high spatial and temporal resolutions. It's sensitive to the presence of calcification and fat. CT can be used to define the extent of tumor, distinguish benign from aggressive neoplasms, and assess the effect of masses on cardiac function. So let me just go through some of the facts from the article. This is kind of almost like board review. But there are a number of benign cardiac tumors. Myxoma is the one we typically think about. Lipoma, papillary fibroastoma, hemangioma, paraganglioma. You can see the list and read it as well as I can. So there's a number of them in the range of about 10. And then we talk about malignant tumors. The most common is metastatic disease. But then we talk about lymphoma and sarcoma. Those are the two other most common, but metastasis wins by about 40 to 1. And then we talk about what we would consider non-tumoral masses, uh, lipomas, hypertrophy of the intraatrial septum, thrombus, pericardial cyst would be examples, and things that kind of simulate masses, bronchogenic cyst, hiatal hernia. So some facts. Cardiac myxoma, most common benign cardiac tumor, up to half of all primary cardiac neoplasms, age range is about 30 to 60, equal frequency in men and women, and most common in the left atrium near the fossa ovalis. So think about a left atrial mass. Typically on CT, it's well-defined, may be lobulated. Calcification is not uncommon. It may enhance on contrast-enhanced scans. Depending where it's located, can prolapse, and again, up to 75% in the left atrium. Presentation, uh, it can present as valvular or intracavitary dysfunction. Up to about one-third of cases, left-sided myxomas will present with embolic phenomena. And patients also can present with symptoms like fever, malaise, and weight loss. And here's uh, just a list of things that the authors commented on about benign versus malignant tumors. Benign, more common on the left side, that's cause of myxomas. Tumors are larger, typically malignant. They're more ill-defined, they're infiltrative, typically malignant. Uh, attachment, uh, if you see the broad-based, more commonly malignant. You see vessels feeding it, more commonly malignant. Dense calcification, think of sarcomas like an osteosarcoma. You see pericardial fusions, you see metastasis. Well, it's easy, it's malignant. But this is at least something to think about. 
Now, there are certain other tumors that have certain characteristics. Fibroelastoma is an uncommon tumor, about 10% of cardiac tumors, but it's the most common on valves, middle-aged and older adults. It's often an incidental finding. Most are solitary, up to about two centimeters in size, though they can grow larger. And I've typically picked them up as incidental findings on cardiac CT scans. They're small, homogeneous, attached to a cardiac valve. Differential diagnosis would include vegetation, thrombosomexoma. Most patients are asymptomatic, while others can have angina or embolic phenomena. And surgical removal is recommended in symptomatic patients and patients with mobile left-sided tumors because of the danger of embolic phenomena. I mentioned before that malignant cardiac tumors are up to 40 times more common than primary tumors. Um, primary, the sources of these malignancies, melanoma, thyroid, lung, sarcoma, are all things we will consider, the esophagus, kidney, breast, as well as lymphoma and leukemia are another, other possibilities. Uh, again, in terms of tumor, tumors may extend from direct extension, like lymphoma, hematogenous spread, transvenous spread and lymphatic spread. And in this talk, I'm not showing you examples. I think we have a number of examples in the, in the teaching files section on CTSS, but I've also given you a few lectures within the past year on cardiac tumors, so you can go back and look at that. That would be helpful. We talk about tumor extension. We talk about direct extension from adjacent tumors like lung, breast, esophagus, or other mediastinal tumors. When you talk about hematogenous spread, think lung cancer, Transvenous spread, think about renal cell, hepatoma, adrenal tumors, as well as things like uh, thymoma, for example, and lymphatic spread, then you're thinking lymphoma, breast, or lung cancer. I'll just mention for a moment cardiac lymphoma, just a couple facts. More common in HIV patients, usually it's non-Hodgkin's B-cell lymphoma, not uncommon to involve right atrium, pericardium, or the AV groove, and you can have single or multiple masses may be seen. A couple comments about sarcomas. It's the most common primary cardiac malignancy, more common in women, a bit of a younger age population, 20 to 50. Majority, 75%, originate in the patient's right atrium. Multiple lesions, not uncommon. And angiosarcoma is the most common type, and rhabdo, the second most common type, with rhabdo being the number one type in children. So those are some of the facts. A good article. I think it's worthwhile reading that article. It was sort of like a pictorial essay. had lots of pictures, so it's pretty fast reading. I've kind of gotten the key facts for you here, but it's worthwhile looking at those pictures. What else can we look at? Well, the liver. There's been some interesting stuff, but I'll tell you what. Let's take a break for five minutes, and we'll come back, and we'll pick it up with part two. Thanks very much.